let's, uh, I want to start off with a word of prayer. Um, my title for the sermon this morning, which I didn't have until last night, is Between the Trees, uh, because we're going to see that there is a tree at the beginning of the Bible, and there's a tree at the end of the Bible. And we're living between those two trees. So we're going to cover somewhere around 8,000 years of human life this morning. Um, and so I assume you want to eat lunch, so let's pray that God gets this done. All right. <laughs> well, let's, let's pray quick. Father God, we are so grateful that we can gather together this morning uh, to share just time with one another, fellowship with one another, to sing songs of praise to you, to hear your word read, uh, to absorb it into our hearts and our lives. And God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would move as we look into your word, uh, as we consider the resurrection and all that it means for us, uh, as we take communion together. God, we just want your spirit to move, and we just ask that you would be glorified, that Jesus would be glorified today. And we just pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. The opening line of the scriptures of the Bible in Hebrew are, Shit bara Elohim, eight hashamayim va'et ha'aretz. It means, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a familiar verse to many, but it's amazing to think about. And that first chapter of Genesis has so much information packed into it uh, in, in terms of ancient culture, Hebrew culture, the, the language itself. Uh, there's so much depth to it. It's truly, truly amazing. Just the first couple of chapters of, of Genesis. But we know Genesis 1 typically as the creation account or, or the first creation account of 2. So Genesis 1 talks about the creation. Genesis 2 kind of has a narrative. It's a it's, Genesis 1 has kind of a structure to it. Genesis 2 is more of a narrative, a story about what happened. But both of them uh, talk about how creation came to be, and then it says that God rested at the end of creation. So in the midst of that creation story, there's a lot that we can learn, not just the fact that God created, but a lot about who God is and, and how we can know him. And the first thing that I want to look at this morning is the fact that it says, Boreshit bara Elohim. That word Elohim is the, is the word God. It's translated as God in your scripture. But Elohim is actually a generic term for God. So in all ancient cultures, they had different gods and goddesses, uh, and they would use that same term, Elohim, that same word, to refer to their gods. So when it says Elohim, it's, it's a kind of a generic term for God. But in the Hebrew, that im at the end is a plural. So it makes it a plural word, and it highlights the holiness of God. It highlights the transcendence of God. So when you, when you believe that God exists, but he's kind of out there, and you can't really know him, that's, that's kind of the sense of Elohim. It's his holiness, his greatness, his vastness. God's incomprehensible nature. There's a distance, in a sense, between God and man. And yet in Genesis 2... As we have the narrative description of the creation account, the same creation, obviously, like there's more than one, in that story, in that narrative, we see the, in your scriptures it would say Lord God, right? In English it'll say Lord God, and that's translation of Yahweh Elohim. And that term Yahweh is actually God's personal name. In Exodus 6, God is speaking to Moses and he says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. And so in Genesis 2, that term Yahweh, that's the name being used. So in Genesis 1, we have this great, holy, transcendent, powerful God. 
a distant God. But in Genesis 2, that same God moves closer to us and reveals himself to us, and he shares his name with us, his personal name. Now, the Hebrew scriptures uh, were written without vowels because they didn't have, the, the, they didn't have iPads and things to, to type on. So when they wrote, they had to conserve their resources, so they wrote just the consonants. And so later on, scholars went back to those Hebrew scriptures and they added the vowels so that people could read it more easily. But when the Jewish scholars came to that name Yahweh, they didn't add the vowels. So all the Hebrew scriptures say are Yod, He, Vav, He, four letters. And they did not add the vowels because they have such a high respect for God and his name. They didn't want you to say it. So instead, if you're talking to somebody Jewish, they won't say that name. They'll typically substitute it with Adonai which translates Lucy to Lord. So, again, we have that personal name of God. God is sharing who he is with us. He's introducing himself to humanity, and yet humanity holds him in such high regard that they still won't say that personal name. So God is close, but he's also far. Now, that idea of rest, God created and then he rested on the seventh day, and we think, well, if God's all-powerful, why does he need rest, right? Why did he take a nap? I'm all for naps. I think maybe that's why, but... One of the things that uh, in the ancient ear, that idea of resting would signify that God just created a sacred space for himself. He created a sanctuary. So as we read about God creating the garden in that creation story, he's creating a sanctuary for himself. It's a sacred space. He created the garden for man, right? Man was to cultivate the garden. But he didn't create it just for man. He created it for man and for himself. So God created a space for himself to dwell with man and for man to worship God. It was meant to be a relational space. And Genesis 2.9 says, In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that tree of life, just pack that in the back of your mind because we're going to hear that again later, but that tree of life just kind of has the essence of being in God's presence and how life-giving that presence of God is. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil uh, unleashes a story that parents everywhere can relate to. So God creates everything, creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden, and says to his new children, you can eat from any tree in all the world. Any tree is yours for food. Eat anything you want. Don't touch this tree. And they went, what, this one? <laughs> right, parents? At that moment, everything changed. The sanctuary that God created for us to be with him, to worship him, and for him to dwell with us was changed. Adam and Eve, we think about them disobeying God, but they did more than just disobey God. They effectively questioned God's authority. God created everything, so God has the right to say what's right and wrong. But Adam and Eve decided, well, no, I think I know better than him. That fruit looks pretty good. He said it's dangerous, but look at it. It's shiny. Let's eat it. And so they denied God his authority to define right and wrong, and they instead inserted their own authority to define right and wrong. And they called what was wrong right and what was bad good. And when they did that, they were separated from God's presence. They were kicked out of the garden. They were removed from that space where the tree of life was. And what follows in Genesis is what's known as the cycle of death. From that point on, we see death enter the world. 
So Cain and Abel, right? We all kind of know the story of Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother Abel. It's the first murder or, or however you want to say it. He killed his brother. I said that because there's a lot more to the story, but I'm, I'm trying not to go off on a rabbit trail here. Then we read of Cain's descendant Lamech, who kills a man and writes a, a, a snappy song about it, celebrating the fact that he killed somebody. And then in Genesis 5, we have the genealogies that, that trace uh, kind of mankind's family down the line. But after each descendant, it says, and then he died. So there's this person, and he had these children, and then he died. This person had these children, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. So we see that death not only entered the world in Genesis 3, but it continued on through humanity. The day after, I'm taking a risk by sharing this because this is Easter. It's supposed to be upbeat. We're supposed to celebrate. Um, the day after we gave our official notice to accept this position, a 12-year-old boy in our town up north was shot and killed accidentally by his twin brother. And it was devastating. Here I go, Rebecca. <laughs> it was devastating for the whole community. Uh, it's a small community, so you, you can't just ignore the fact that this happened. And it doesn't just resonate in your mind. It's somebody that you've interacted with on a regular basis. Uh, this kid lived two houses from us, and he spent a lot of time at our house. Sorry, trying to hold it together. In the midst of that, I know uh, I shared it with Frank. I know many of you were praying for us, and I just wanted to, to pause and appreciate that. It, it really meant a lot to us, and it got us through uh, that situation. But as you can imagine, it was just... It was devastating. It was a devastating loss. As a pastor, I knew the family pretty well. Um, I knew people, first responders that were there. So I found out pretty quickly what had happened and um, was with the family during some very raw moments. It was, it, was, um, it was tough. It was rough. It happened Thursday afternoon. And late Saturday night, I was in the kitchen with Sarah, and I realized that my hands were still shaking. I was still trembling. It just, it just rocked our world. It rocked our family. It rocked our community. And I share that to say that the cycle of death in Genesis can be theoretical. It can be abstract, right? We know people die. But when it's close to you, it, it hurts. It tears you up inside. It raises a lot of difficult questions that, that we need to wrestle with. Why does God allow things like that? Why do people die at all? Why is there pain like that in our world? What happens when we die? Last week we looked very briefly at uh, the idea of the Jewish Passover celebration. Uh, in Hebrew, again, Pascha. I think that's how you say it. I don't know. There's a, there's a in there, I think. Pascha. Uh, it means Passover. And the Jewish people celebrated that for about 3,500 years prior to today. For about 3,500 years, they would celebrate this uh, event that took place in, in Hebrew culture. They were celebrating the time that they were enslaved by Israel, but God rose up Moses, a leader, and sent him to Pharaoh to get them released from slavery. So Moses went before Pharaoh. I'm just kind of quickly summarizing this and, and kept saying over and over, let my people go. And Pharaoh would not let them go. And so God would send a plague. And those plagues that he sent against Egypt were direct challenges to Egyptian gods. And so God continued to challenge and challenge and challenge and challenge. And Pharaoh denied and denied and denied and denied. 
And finally, God said that he was going to send a last plague that would result in the death of every firstborn son in the world, in the land. So from Pharaoh's family all the way down to the slaves, from people to animals, the firstborn male of every family would die. But God made a provision for his family, told them to take a one-year-old male lamb without defect and to slaughter it at twilight and put the blood on the tops and sides of their doorway. And when the Spirit of God went through the land to take the firstborn, he would see the blood on the doorway and he would pass over that home. And so the, the Hebrew uh, children were spared and they were released from slavery. And God uh, ordained to them to celebrate a festival every year to remember what he had done for them, to remember the fact that he brought them out of slavery, that he took care of them through the desert, brought them into the land that, that God had promised. So for about 1,500 years, uh, the Jewish people celebrated this Passover meal. And as we get into the Gospels, as we near the Easter season, Jesus, uh, as we looked at last week on Palm Sunday, he was entering Jerusalem as a pilgrim to celebrate that festival. Last week, uh, I talked about the football, right? Getting back to the basics. And I challenge you to wrestle with the question, who is Jesus? Anybody do your homework? Did you read a gospel? All right, we're done here. No. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're honest. That's good. I, I'd love to make you feel guilty, but I didn't get through it either. But we'll do it this week, right? Can we do it this week? Pick a gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mark's the short one. Where was I? See, here it goes. i got to throw my nose. Who is Jesus? Wrestle with the question, who is Jesus? As you read through the Gospels, and the, the Gospel I chose was John. I did, I did start my homework. I just the dog ate it. But John especially highlights the fact that Jesus is God. And so I want to I go through some things that happened that week as we consider the Passover meals, we consider the events of leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, and, and think about the fact that Jesus was God. So Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as a Jewish pilgrim. He was going to celebrate the Passover with his disciples, these, these 12 men, and there may have been others there. We know the 12 were there. Uh, Mary Magdalene was likely with him. She was following him quite a bit. She was a disciple. There were other disciples that aren't necessarily named. but So Jesus has his crew, right, his entourage, and he gets into Jerusalem specifically to celebrate Passover with them. But as he enters the city, he knows that his death is imminent. He knows what's coming. But he's leading them through this ancient tradition, this Jewish tradition. And it's something that had been celebrated for over a thousand years, around 1,500 years. And yet as he goes through this tradition, as he goes through this celebration, he, he takes some forks in the road. He, he changes some of the traditions. He veers off of what had been done for generations. So at mealtime, as they enter the, the home for the Passover meal, uh, what norm, normally would have happened was one of the servants that served the home would take the men and, and the women and they would wash their hands and they would wash their feet. That was the job of a servant. But during this particular Passover, Jesus breaks tradition. Now Jesus, as the rabbi, he would have been the host of the meal. So he would have had a ceremonial hand-washing. 
So you walk around with a bowl and a pitcher and you pour water over their hands and, and you just kind of rub in. But that's not really doing much, right? But Jesus broke tradition. And in John 13, we read this. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I just want you to to sit on that for a minute and think about God. Jesus said he was God. So God, who is the creator of everything that we know, God, who is all-powerful, God, who is all-knowing, got down on his hands and knees and washed the dirty feet of his disciples. And in doing that, he demonstrated incomprehensible humility. Our all-powerful God who created everything got down on his knees before his creation and washed their feet. What amazing love and servanthood and humility. But then he did something rough. He asked us to do the same. I was thinking back to college. There, I was part of a InterVarsity is kind of like youth group for colleges, college-age kids. And at one point, the leadership of InterVarsity decided they were going to have a foot-washing ceremony or whatever you want to call it. And so we had like a, a time of worship and things. It was a little more serious than we were used to, but it was a time of worship and whatever. And then they read a passage about the foot-washing. And then the, the student leaders got up and they started washing one another's feet. And it was very clear that their intention was we would all follow suit. But I don't really dig feet, and, and they kind of smell, and I don't want people touching my feet, per se. So we awkwardly sat there, and they awkwardly sat there until they realized nobody was doing this, <laughs> and they moved on. But if we, I, I won't include you in my mess, but I wasn't super comfortable washing people's feet, and yet God, the creator of everything, washed his disciples' feet. You will hear me say this often over time. Ministry is messy. Ministry is messy. And I I look at this church, I look at the people in the church and your heart for the city and your desire to bring Christ to people. And I just want to pause and recognize that ministry is messy. That at times we're going to be down on on our knees in front of stinky, dirty feet. 
And bear in mind, as, as we read that story of Jesus, two of those feet would betray him that night to sell him out, to be killed. Two of those feet belonged to his best friend, who three times that night would deny even knowing him. And yet Jesus was down on his knees, washing those feet, knowing what was going to happen. So part of the, the Passover Seder, the Passover meal, Last week I misspoke. I have a note here that I want to clarify. I said Passover Seder. The word Seder means meal. It actually means order. So I misspoke, so I apologize. The, the Seder is the order, and it's kind of like a liturgy that you go through as you're having your meal. But part of that Passover Seder uh, is the breaking of afikomen, which is just plain fun to say. Afikomen. Uh, it's a matzah, but during the, the traditional Seder meal, there's uh, like a three-pocket pouch designed specifically for this purpose. And within each of those pockets, there's a piece of matzah. And at some point early in the Seder, the host will pull out the middle piece, and he breaks it. That's the afikomen. And he takes the bigger half, and he wraps it in a cloth, and he goes and he hides it somewhere in the house. And then later on in the Seder, he sends the children out, and they all have to go look for that piece of matzah that was hidden. So the afikomen is, uh, that word actually means the Jewish people would tell you that word means dessert. And so at the end of the meal, when they have that piece of afikomen that was hidden, the children find it and they get a prize for finding it. And then that piece is broken into little pieces and it's used as part of their dessert. At the end of the meal, excuse me, I'm lost again. I usually have printed notes, but I realized last night I don't have a printer because we just moved here. So early on, you break the afikomen, you hide the piece, the children find it later, bring it back. It's possible that Jesus, when he was initiating the Lord's Supper, or communion, however you know it, it's possible that it was that afikomen that he broke and said, this is my body. In John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. So this idea of Jesus being bread was, was brought out through the Gospels, but then at this point in the Seder, Jesus is taking, again, an ancient celebration, and he's putting new meaning to it based upon what he's about to do. If, in fact, he did use the afikomen for the Lord's Supper, there are three pieces of matzah in that bag. He chose the second one. When you baptize people, you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's possible there's significance to that second piece being the Son within the Trinity. The word afikomen, again, if you ask a Jewish person, they would say that it's a dessert. It's part of the dessert of the Passover Seder. But that word afikomen has a little mystery around it. And it can also mean hidden or concealed, which would signify Jesus having died and been buried. He was hidden. He was concealed for a time. But then the children go and they find it. They reveal it. And we know Jesus was revealed again. That same word, afikomen, can also mean what is to come. It can look forward to something that's still coming. So all of this could refer, in the Passover Seder, could refer to the act that Jesus was about to perform in sacrificing himself for us. Within the Passover Seder, there are also moments where uh, each person would have a glass of wine. 
and they can drink wine through the meal, but then there are parts of the ceremony where you ceremonially take the glass and there's a blessing said and there's something read about the history of Israel and then they drink together. And so again, Jesus takes the afikom and he breaks it and he puts new significance to it. He takes the wine that's been used for these different blessings and these different meanings and he puts new meaning to it. In Luke 22, we read, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Again, he took an ancient tradition and he put new meaning to it. In John 19, 14, we read that, Jesus went before Pilate, right, during this trial. He went before Pilate on the day of preparation. And the next day was the Sabbath. And that's meaningful because the lambs that would have been slaughtered for the Passover meal would have been slaughtered on the day of preparation. Because the Sabbath, you don't do work. So on the day of preparation, you're getting everything ready for your meal. And then as the sun goes down, that begins the next day. That begins the Sabbath. And that's the day they begin their Passover meal. They begin to eat what's already been prepared. That's significant because that's the day all of the Passover lambs would have been slaughtered. And we know that is the day that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was crucified. And so just as back in ancient Israel, a lamb's blood was used to cover over their sin, to protect them. So Jesus, the Lamb of God, he was slaughtered. His blood covers our sin and protects us. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together at this time. I'm going to, I'm going to just pause there, and what I'm going to do is, uh, because I don't know how you all normally take communion, we're just making it up this morning, I'm going to have uh, you all just come up. There's prepackaged cups and crackers in there. So you can just come up, grab a cup, go back to your seat, and in that time in your travels, just examine yourself. Think about yourself. Are you right with God? Is there something keeping you from being close to God this morning? Is there some sin? Is there some hurt, some doubt, some shame that's keeping you from being close to God? Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you anything right now. And when you're ready, just come up, grab the cup, go back to your seat, and we'll all take together in a few minutes.
Let's open the top pouch together and take the bread out. As we consider the fact that Jesus was God, as we consider the fact that Jesus, the rabbi, was celebrating the Passover Seder, looking back to the lamb that was slaughtered and whose blood protected his people, freed them from slavery. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 said, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The brokenness that you suffer, the hurts inside that you suffer, the abuses you've taken throughout life, physical ailments, all of that Jesus took on himself and was broken on our behalf. Let's take together in remembrance of that. Let's open the cup together. Paul said in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This cup represents the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, that was spilled to cover our sins for our forgiveness, for our reconciliation to our Father in heaven. Let's drink together. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 speaks of the new covenant that Jesus referred to. It said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. At the end of John 19, Jesus, again, having died on the cross, is taken down hastily because the Sabbath is about to start. And the Jewish people can't do work on Sabbath. It's not right for them to prepare the body on the Sabbath. So they hastily take Jesus down and they put him in a tomb. After the Sabbath, Mary Magdalene and some other women go to the tomb to prepare the body properly. It says they have with them the spices and things that they would need to prepare the body. But something surprising happens. Not for us, because we've had 2,000 years of spoilers. But for them, something very surprising happened. In John chapter 20, we have the story that Rebecca was referring to earlier. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb 
and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the, at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told him that he had said these things to her. By the death of Christ on the cross, we have been set free from the slavery of our sin. Just as the Israelites were set free from slavery in Egypt, we have been set free from the darkness that we were born into, from the bad decisions we would inherently make, from the rebellion. I, a while back, I overheard some people having the conversation of, why did Adam and Eve go and ruin life for us? Because if they had only done the right thing, then we'd be okay. Don't kid yourselves, we'd eat the fruit. We all have that rebellious heart. We all want to be the one in charge, making the decisions about what's right and what's wrong. But God freed us from that through his son Jesus on the cross. We are forgiven. We are reconciled to our Father in heaven. So the resurrection of Christ. We're here to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And I really want to kind of dwell on what the resurrection means for us. Why do we care? Easter bunnies are cool. Chocolate's great but why do we care about the resurrection? Because the resurrection of Christ gives us hope. That is where our hope lies, in the resurrection of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, I shared of the passing of that 12-year-old boy and how devastating it was and how difficult and traumatic it was to walk with the family through that and with our community through that. But two weeks before he died, uh, this kid was a regular at our kids' club. Every Wednesday night, kids come out, we feed them, we have them play games, we tell them a Bible story, they have time of singing. And Sarah happened to be this boy's group leader. And the person that heads up the ministry was urging Sarah, ask each kid how they feel about Jesus. Who is Jesus to them? Ask each one. 
And Sarah wasn't fully comfortable doing that, but she, she pressed on and she did it. And Wyatt answered confidently that he knew Jesus and he loved him. And who would have thought two weeks later how very meaningful that would be? It still hurt. It was still something that we had to work through. But we had hope. We had hope because we know about the power of the resurrection of Christ. And we know that his faith was in Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that is perishable though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter writes that we have a living hope because our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in that death of Christ that freed us from the slavery to sin, that brought us forgiveness of our sin, that brought us reconciliation to our Father. But that hope doesn't stop there because Jesus rose from the grave. He defeated death. By death, he defeated death. So that now when we consider Wyatt, we know for a fact that he is in the arms of Christ. We have that hope. We have a living hope because Jesus is our hope and Jesus is alive. I started out saying we live between the trees. In Genesis, we read about the tree of life. We read about being in the presence of God and, and how life-giving that was. And yet we look around and, and at times we feel very far from God, don't we? We see the violence, we see the hatred, we see the racism, we see politics dividing our country, we see people in starvation around the world. All these terrible, terrible things are going on. And, and we, we, if we're honest, we question, right? God, what are you doing? Where are you? Are you there? Am I talking to myself? We all have those questions in our mind. But we're living between the trees. There's a, a theological idea of already, not yet. That Jesus came and said the kingdom of heaven is at hand and we can already see the kingdom of God here on earth when people do good things, when they help those who are hurting, when we bring healing, when we pray with people. That is God bringing the kingdom here on earth. That's already. And yet there's a not yet dynamic also. The kingdom of God is not yet what it's going to be. We're seeing the starts of it, but it's not yet in its fruition. We're living between the trees. In Revelation 21, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. 
He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. For many people who don't know Christ, the world around us is as good as it gets. How depressing. But for us, we know in the midst of the darkness of this world, there is light. And we know it because Jesus Christ put that light in us when we put our faith in him. We are the light of God in this world of darkness. We are the ones God has chosen and empowered to bring the kingdom of God to our area. And we can see before us the living hope of our living Christ who is establishing things permanently in the future. John goes on to say in Revelation 22, Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. There's a tree at the beginning of the story. There's a tree at the end of the story. We're living between the trees, but don't lose hope, because God is making all things right. He's going to take everything that we know and he's going to make it the way he intended it from the start. And he can do that because of the blood of Christ that freed us from our darkness. The resurrection of Christ brings us living hope. And I want to be clear, that living hope starts now. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. And he didn't say, when you die. He means now when we realize what Jesus did for us, that Jesus was God and that God stepped into our world, that Elohim stepped in to get closer to us, to show us Yahweh. And he took our sin and he lived a perfect life on our behalf. And he shed his blood in our stead so that now we can be free. And then by his resurrection, we have the hope of our own resurrection. And that starts now. We can be in God's presence now. That's something to celebrate. Let's close in prayer and thank God for what he did for us. Thank God for stepping into our world and allowing us to know him better. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for who you are. God, we, we question you very often because we have finite minds. We, we can't understand all things. And God, sometimes we don't understand the punishment that you would hand out. We don't understand why there's a hell. We don't understand why people would end up there if you're a good God. And yet you are a just God as well. And we wouldn't want you to be unjust. Because when we look at our world, we recognize the things that are not right. We see people suffering and we get angry because we know that's not right. We see people get cheated and hurt and victimized and we get angry because we know that's not right. 
And that's because you are a just God. And yet you are also a God of great love and mercy and compassion. Your word says that you don't want any one of us to live without you. You want us to all come to faith in Christ and what he has done for us. And so this morning we just want to celebrate the amazing humility that Christ demonstrated by stepping off of his throne in heaven and entering into our world to bring us back to you, to free us from the slavery of our own sin, our own rebellion, to bring healing to the hurting, to bring hope to the hopeless. God, you are our living hope. And we're so thankful for the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And we're so thankful for the resurrection that we celebrate today, bringing new life to this world. And God, we just want to ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and help us to understand that new life that we have now. Help us to understand how we can bring that life, that light that you've put in us, to the city around us. To bring the hope you've given us to those who have no hope to bring the healing that we have experienced to those who are still hurting. God, would you use us as your instruments to bring your kingdom here on earth? Not as it will be in its fruition, but as you would have it now. God, we pray specifically for City Light Church, that this would be a, a tremendous starting point in the future of this church. God, that you would... Fill us with compassionate, humble hearts that we would be willing to serve the people around us, to get down on our knees and wash their feet, to step into the mess of their lives as Jesus stepped into the mess of ours, and to bring that living hope that you've blessed us with to those who are still hurting. We pray for the city of Wilkesbury, Lord, that you would just help us to see a vision of what you are doing here so that we can align ourselves with you. God, in humility, we ask that you would make us your instruments in this city to bring your love to people. And God, we look forward to the day that there will be no more hurting, no more pain, no more death, but that we get to dwell with you. We get to live with you for all eternity. We're so grateful. We love you. We praise you this morning. We glorify you and what Jesus did for us. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. Amen. Happy Easter, everybody. You're dismissed. <laughs>